Great. Wow. They're great testimonies, eh? Absolutely fantastic. <clears throat> Just to say, yeah, I forgot about that serving the community Sunday. My apologies. I, I do think that's going to be a significant Sunday, 11th of June. I do. I got real faith that God's going to bless not only bless us as a church, but bless the people that are going to come. We're going to try and get representatives there from all the different partner organisations that we're working with. The council, Baby Cafe, the school, etc., uh, etc., et Winter Night Shelter. And we just want to bring them here, let them express what they're doing. We want to say to them, well done. Well done for what you're doing. Uh, we have a reason for serving the community. It's because God told us to serve and love the community. A lot of these folk... Man, they don't know God, but they just serve the community. It's what they do. Something inside of them, made in the image of God, they want to serve. So we want to bring them here, and we want to say to them, well done, carry on, we're with you, we're supporting you, we want to partner with you. So 11th of June, I think that is going to be a good Sunday and important for us. Um, Rosemary mentioned um, we were praying for her on Tuesday night at the leaders' meeting. And um, in that meeting, Pippa gave a testimony um, about a word of knowledge that was given, given somewhere where she was, and then someone got healed. And she said, you know, we, we haven't done that for some time in church. I said, no, you're real, you're right, we haven't. So we're going to do it this morning. Are you up for that? Yeah. Good. You seem a bit quiet this morning, so I'm a bit concerned. But I'm going to go for it in faith anyway, so I don't care how quiet you are. So... Do be asking God while I'm speaking, what is it that he wants to share through you this morning? Sue said she couldn't believe that God would use her to see his power and kingdom and healing released. Well, guess what? God might use you for that this morning. Is anybody up for that this morning? Good, there's seven of us. We can go with it. You can look happy about it as well because God might use you. God seriously might use you. There might be someone here this morning who sat there in terrible pain and they don't know what to do about it, and they haven't quite got the faith uh, that God's going to heal them, and God might give you the word, or he might make you have a similar pain to theirs, and you'll come up and share it, not knowing what will happen, and God will say, yeah, and God will convince that person I'm going to heal them, and they're going to come up, and then God's going to heal them. That could happen. We are the funniest bunch, aren't we? Oh, well, all right, yeah, I'll wait and see. Mm, we'll see. It could happen, though, couldn't it? It's happened before, isn't it? Could happen again, couldn't it? Could happen this morning, couldn't it? Yeah. Could happen through you, couldn't it? Yeah. Oh, I like this, come on. <laughs> right, good. So we're going to do that at the end, so be ready. Okay, the offering, well, it was um, been good to have these uh, two gift days, last Sunday and this Sunday, and it's for the work of the church uh, here. We have one offering that, that kind of goes to support the work of the church here, and one offering normally around Christmas that we send away uh, outside of this church, around the world, um, to bless God's kingdom. So the one uh, this time of year is for the ministry of the church. And I preached about that last week. And if you missed that one, uh, you can always catch it on the podcast. And this time last year, uh, we gave £10,000 and uh, this offering, which was great. And this year we decided that we, want, we wanted to, to have a faith goal of 20000 That we wanted to give double. Because it seemed to us that actually uh, God is calling us uh, not only to keep on doing what we're doing, but to do more. And uh, that's going to cost us more money. And so we need more money. And so although it was £10,000 last year, we thought we'd go for £20,000 this year. I can now tell you the total of our offering. Would you like to know? Are you interested? Yes. If it's good, will you be excited? Yes. Will you clap and cheer and applaud God? Yes. So it's 28000 <laughs> Ah, there you go. See, I knew you had it in you. I knew... I know, I know, I know. 
I know. Good. God's hand's got to be on things when you get that kind of level of gift, eh? Nearly three times as much. Father, we just thank you for every pound and penny. We thank you, Lord, that this is about your kingdom and extending your work. And we thank you for the generosity that you've shown towards us. We thank you that we're able to pour out generously, knowing that you will pour in your love and resources and everything else that we need generously as well. So, Father, we pray for this money. We thank you. We pray that we would use it to steward the advance of your kingdom. And it would be used to reach and serve and bless people that don't know you. So, Father, we thank you for this money. We pray, give us real wisdom and grace as we use it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It's amazing, isn't it? Good. Okay, excellent. So this morning we are going to carry on uh, looking at the book of Matthew. And we're looking at this subject of discipleship. And over the next couple of weeks we are going to be dealing with kingdom message. And I'm going to look at a very well-known parable this morning that Jesus told about a farmer who sowed seeds in a field and the harvest which it did or didn't produce. And I really want to look at it under two headings, seed and soil. And probably next week, Quincy may well focus a little bit more on the sower, which I will just touch on a bit this week. Now, if somebody said to me, if they came to me and had the Bible open and said to me, what, what, what can we learn from this passage of Scripture, Dale? I would have to say to them, this passage of Scripture is primarily about evangelism. It's primarily about the gospel and how people get saved. But this morning, I want to look at this passage, but I want to look at it through the eyes of discipleship. In other words, I want to look at it through the eyes of wanting to know what can this tell us as individuals and as a church about becoming more like Jesus. Now, we, we can never make the Bible say what it doesn't say, and we need to be clear what is the main message or thrust or teaching of a passage. But once we've done those things, we can look at passages kind of from different angles and see what that reveals to us. So I'm just saying this up front. Basically, primarily, this is a passage about evangelism, but it's okay, once we understand that, to look at it with a discipleship hat on, maybe ask some slightly different questions of it. So I hope that you are happy with that, you understand that, and I'm going to read for you this parable. You'll find it in Matthew 13. I'm going to read verses 1 to 9, then I'm going to read verses 18 to 23. It'll come up on the screen behind me. Matthew 13, 1 to 9, which is Jesus telling the parable, and then... Matthew 18.23, a few verses later, where Jesus explains what the parable means. So this is what it says. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places, where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. 
Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. So Lord Jesus, we pray that you would speak to us through your word. We pray that you would open up our ears and open up our minds and open up our hearts and teach us what it is that you want us to learn from you this morning, that our lives and our thinking and our actions might line up with what it is that you want of us. So I just pray for that now in Jesus' name. Amen. So the word parable means a placing beside. And so Jesus tells parables. He kind of places these stories alongside real life in order to highlight or to show uh, what it is to fully explain what's going on. And not always does Jesus fully explain his parables like this. So it's always worth listening to Jesus, but it's doubly worth listening to him when he actually explains and the Bible records for us what he meant. So we're going to look at this under two, two headings, the seed and the sower. So let's start off by thinking about the seed. And the first thing to say is this, it's blindingly obvious, but it's worth saying. What you sow is what you get, right? What you sow is what you get. A seed will and only reproduce the same plant or flower as f or fruit as that which it has come from. You see, if you sow wheat and expect to get barley, then you are an idiot. If you want to grow grapes, then don't sow weeds. Sow grape seeds. It, it, it sounds ridiculously simple, but actually it's very important. And we must make sure that as disciples, we are sowing the seeds of the gospel into our lives and into the lives of other people. Not some modified, watered down, uh, more acceptable, less offensive, cut price, cut off version of the gospel because that is no gospel at all. We cannot as a church expect to be or make genuine disciples through preaching and living out a modified or a compromised gospel. The only seed that we should sow, as it says in verse 19, is the message of the kingdom. The good news in all its fullness and power and uncompromising truth that everybody is a sinner before a holy God but he has sent his son to die on the cross that we might be forgiven. 
that the kingdom of God is here, that it's at hand, that King Jesus is here, and he requires everyone to bow the knee and to surrender before him and to now live their lives as his subject, with him as their Lord and Saviour, in this new kingdom which is now and not yet. If we as a church or as individuals sow the seed of some compromised, watered-down gospel, then we will reap a harvest of watered-down, compromised Christians, compromised, watered-down churches. I think generally that is why much of the church in this nation is so weak. It's because we've preached a compromised, watered-down gospel and therefore we have reaped a compromised and watered-down churches and Christians. Do you follow that? Let me give you an illustration or some examples or an example. See, the Bible clearly states that some things are wrong in God's eyes. God states it. These things are wrong in my eyes. He calls those things sin. But it's very tempting uh, to water that down, to compromise on that to people. So lying is a sin. We know stealing is a sin. We know because the Bible says that any sex outside of marriage between a man or a woman is a sin because God said I created sex for a particular purpose in a particular setting. It was my wedding gift to a man and a woman once they have got married. So any sex between a man and a woman or a woman and a woman or a man and a man is sin outside of the context of my previous point because God has said marriage is between a man and a woman and I have created sex to be used in that context. Now, most people in the world would expect the church to say that God says lying is wrong. And most people would expect the church to say that God says stealing is wrong. But you know, most people these days in the world, they don't care what the church says that God says about sex outside marriage. Because they feel they've won the argument and it's an irrelevance. If you say to somebody, I'm a Christian, I believe that actually sex outside of marriage is wrong, people won't get that upset with you. Not really. 40 years ago they might have, but they don't get that upset. Not really now. It's an irrelevance. Nobody cares. Uh, We've won that argument, to be honest with you. You, the church, you don't even know what you really think about it. You, You don't really, they won't get that offended. Most people these days, though, do care and get very vocal and upset if the church dare say what God says about people having sex who are of the same sex. They get really offended by that. There's huge public pressure through the media, through every sphere of influence, that everybody has to agree that there's nothing wrong with gay sex. Think about Tim Farron asked the question directly in the House of Parliament. There's this huge weight of public opinion. How dare you say that? Even how dare the church, how dare the church even say that? You're bigots, you're wrong, you're misrepresenting God, you're alienating people from yourself. Huge pressure. And under this weight of public pressure, many Christians, many churches are kind of compromising, are saying, oh, well, no, it's okay. Compromising, which definitely makes you look nice, more acceptable, more inclusive, more loving. But here's the question. If you compromise on any of those four things, I've just picked them as examples. The question is this, I would ask. What seed are you sowing? What seed are you sowing? 
Imagine four people come to church. One who lies, one who, who steals. They're a bank robber by trade. That's what they put down. Occupation, bank robber. That's what they do. An unmarried couple, a, a, a man and a woman who are living and sleeping with each other and two gay guys who are living and sleeping with each other. Imagine these kind of four groups of people come. And the, liar, the one who's lying says, well, does, does this mean I need to stop lying? Do I need to stop lying to become a Christian? Or Did Jesus really want me to stop lying? And we say, yeah, of course he does. Yes, you do, because lying's a sin and Jesus doesn't lie and he wants you to become more like him. And he wants to transform you and the Holy Spirit can help you to stop lying because you don't really, you know, you shouldn't be lying. It's not right. It's not what God wants for you. You're just, you want to become a disciple of Jesus. You've got to be like him now. And we'll help you and we'll pray for you and the Holy Spirit will help you. Yeah, you, yes, of course you do. And the one who's been stealing, he says, well, uh, does that mean I need to stop robbing banks? We say, yeah, of course it does mean you've got to stop robbing banks. Because stealing is wrong. And everything we've said to the first person who, who's been lying, we know, yeah, we say it's the same for you. It's exactly the same. And then to the young unmarried couple who are sleeping together, they say, well, this is me. We've got to ha stop having sex together until we get married. And we say, yeah, didn't you hear what we said to the guy who was lying and the person who was stealing? Of course, it's the same. It's exactly the same. It's like you've opened up your wedding present before time and you need to now reevaluate. Your sexual activity in light of the fact that you want to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. And he's the king and he says what's right or wrong. And so of course you need to do that. You need to reassess that. You need to think that through. You need to see what the king says about it. Yeah, of course you do. And the two gay guys say, well, does that mean we need to stop sleeping together? We say, yeah, it does because it's exactly the same as for the one who was lying and the person who was robbing banks and that young couple that was sleeping together. It's exactly the same. Do you see? It's exactly the same. It's no different. We're just applying what Jesus says into different circumstances and coming out with the answer that he would come out with. Except unfortunately in, this, in our time, many churches I think have kind of compromised, particularly on the couple you know, who, are, who, are, who are sleeping together. They're, well, it doesn't really matter. And, oh, then you might get married one. And if you love each other. And simply coming up with compromises. And therefore, for the two gay guys who say, well, well, yeah, well, it doesn't really matter, it doesn't matter. Or, okay, well, I'll tell you what, get married, that's fine, and then that'll be okay before God. But the problem is this. God said marriage was between a man and a woman, who, between a man and a woman, and you're not a man and a woman. You can't change God's definition and then tell God that he's happy with it. Do you see? Hello, is anybody there? You can't do that. If God says this is what marriage is, it's between X and Y, you can't then say well, between X and X and then say, oh, God says it's okay then. That's madness. You've changed God's definition. God might say, hang on a second, you're playing with what I've set up. Don't do that. But unfortunately, that is what's happening. See, if you play out those four scenarios and God says they're all, they're all wrong, if we understand that, then what it means is that the seed we're going to sow into those people who are coming and asking us, is yes, it is wrong. But you know what? God wants you to change. God wants you to transform. There's the power of the Holy Spirit. God wants you to be more like his son. You can become righteous. You don't need to do those things. God wants to help you. He wants you to be more like Jesus. He wants to change your attitudes and your actions. In other words, the seed that you're sowing is that with God, actually, you can become more like his son. You can become righteous. But if we sow a kind of compromised, watered-down gospel, actually, 
those two gay guys will just say, okay, well, that's fine then. We'll just carry on then, shall we? We'll just carry on. We'll just carry on or we'll just get married and that'll all be fine then. Well, I don't think it is fine before God. And that young couple that are sleeping together, they'll say, oh, well, that's, it doesn't really matter then, does it? It doesn't matter. We'll just carry on. Might get married one day. Might not get married. Doesn't, doesn't really matter. What we're sowing into people's lives right from the get-go is really King Jesus is not really the king and you don't really have to follow him. You can pick and choose the bits that you like. Really, you pick and choose the bits that you like and then apply those bits into your life. Just imagine if you're the one who likes lying and you're the bank robber who likes stealing. They could say, hang on a second. How comes we have to stop and they don't have to stop? How comes King Jesus says something and it applies to us but it doesn't quite apply to them? It's what we've always done. It's what we like doing. I like robbing banks. Easier than working. I enjoy it. I'm good at it. It's what my dad did. I was born to do it. I like Robin Banks. Why are you telling me to transform and change? See, the danger with sowing a compromised, watered-down gospel is that it works for no one. It doesn't work for God because it's not what he said. It doesn't actually work for people involved because either they will conclude King Jesus really doesn't, really doesn't make any demands of me, really doesn't want to change my life. Then there must really be no power there, really within him, so I'll just carry on doing what I'm doing. doesn't make any difference. It, it doesn't demand. It doesn't, it doesn't work for anybody. It doesn't, doesn't work for the church. It doesn't work for the lie of the bank. It, does, it just doesn't work for anybody at all. You're just hypocrites. You're saying they have to, I have to change, but they don't have to change. You're telling me that I can carry on with this. Why are you now telling me I've got to change in that area and not that area? We, you just can't have it both ways. Either King Jesus is the king and he is the king over lives or he is not. So we must sow the seed of the real gospel. We must actually tell people what God says in his word. If we try and cut corners, if we try and compromise, if we try and remove the parts that society finds particularly offensive at the moment, we will reap what we have sown. We will reap what we have sowed. You see, if you sow the gospel into lives, what will be reaped is a harvest of righteousness and discipleship. We will be and we will, we will help people to become people that look more like Jesus, are becoming more like Jesus. But if we sow a compromised, watered-down version of the gospel into lives, we will reap a harvest of churches and Christians who think and act nothing like Jesus which is madness when we're supposed to be representing Jesus. We're supposed to be subjects of Jesus. We're supposed to be representing and ambassadors of his kingdom. But if we end up looking so much like the world, then we're going to start to wonder, hang on a sec, why are we not very attractive to the world? Well, the reason is because we're no different than the world. If we model ourselves on the world, if we allow the world to shape our thinking rather than the word of God to shape our thinking. If we, if we as a church become what the world thinks, what the world dictates the church should be, when they reach crisis moment, when they realise that everything that they've built their life upon is sand, when they realise with the impending reality of death that everything that they put their hope in is about to be pulled from under their feet and they cry out, is there another way to live? 
We'd put our hope in ourselves and in money and power. Is there another way to live? Is there a God after all? Is there someone that can show me the way? And they turn around and they look at the church and they say, gosh, the church looks just like us. They can't have the answers. Do do you see? If we let the world dictate what the church should look like, we will end up being a church that looks like the world. And then when the world realises it's wrong, it will look at the church and say, you're no different than us. It's one, of the, it's one of the cunning ways that the devil has always worked. If he can apply enough pressure from the world into the church to make it end up looking the same as the world, he knows that our effectiveness has just got to zero. It's just gone. Just gone. When you read the Old Testament, you will often notice that God's anger when his children disobey him is not simply that they have disobeyed him. He nearly always says this, Yes, you've disobeyed me and I'm angry with you and you shouldn't have done it. He often says, and what do you think those nations that don't know me will now conclude by what you've done? Those nations that don't know me will look on and see how you have not obeyed and not trusted your God and they will believe that there is no God in heaven. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. What he gets upset about is not just that that his, his people are not doing what he wants and not reflecting him. He says, actually, what about those people that don't know me who are attacking you and trying to kill you and who hate me and who sacrifice their babies in the fire? They will look on at you and, and they will determine that there can't be a God in heaven because you don't trust me. And it's exactly the same for us as the church. We've got to understand and realise that if we end up compromising... What God says, no matter the pressure, no matter how upset the world gets, no matter how much they put on us to know, come on, if you will just change your stance on this, we would believe you. If you would just, if you would just change on this, just this one, we have to understand, if we give in to that pressure, we won't actually be serving them. Because we will end up being the church that looks exactly the same as them. And then when they cry out, Is there not somebody who knows a different way, who knows God? We will look exactly the same as them and we will have nothing to say. Because at that point you can't go and say, yeah, we know we compromised on X and Y, but we only did it so that you'd believe us. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. We mustn't compromise. We mustn't change the gospel. It's not our gospel. It's God's gospel. It's him who tells people what it's like. And we must be those who are willing to say, no, no, this is what God says. This is what God says. And we know you struggle with this bit and this bit. But the answer to that is not to say, oh, well, it doesn't really matter. That's what the world would love us to do. That's what the devil would love us to do. He'd love us to compromise. He'd love us to say, oh, yeah, no, that's fine. That's fine. Don't worry about that. God will deal with that later. This is what happens with things that God doesn't deal with at the start or the principle that God is God and Jesus is King. If you don't get that in at the start, further down the track it never gets dealt with. Never gets dealt with. So we must make sure that the seed of the gospel that we are planting is the true gospel. Does everybody understand that? I feel it's really important. It's massively important. I understand and sense of... I live... You feel the pressure from the court of public opinion. Public opinion is by far the most powerful thing in this country at the moment. 
Jeremy Paxman decided I'm not going to become an MP, I'm going to become a journalist because public opinion is more powerful than the MPs. Public opinion. Public opinion. Public opinion says this, man, you've got to be something to stand up to public opinion. But we must make sure that we preach the gospel. We say what God says in love, in love, not, 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 not judging people, not ridiculing them, not horribly, not harshly. My, my heart breaks when I see some so-called Christians hanging up some of these banners and what they say. I want to go and punch them. They might be right in what they're saying, but that's not the way Jesus would say it. Breaks my heart when I see it. I think it's terrible. They're wrong, but we must make sure that we don't become wrong by watering down what God says. Do you understand? We must make sure that we say it as it really is. So the seed, the seed of the gospel, the seed of the gospel. Second thing I want to say is what matters is the seed and not the sower. See, when you put a seed in the ground, it doesn't matter how good the gardener or experience the gardener is. Once that seed goes into the ground, that seed is going to grow because the power to grow and to be effective is contained within the seed. And so whether the sower is awake or asleep, understands about farming, the power... The power of growth and life is contained within that seed. And you know, in terms of discipleship, becoming more like Jesus, growing in the kind of fruit that he wants us to grow, you know, we, we cannot grow that apart from putting the seeds of the gospel, the truth that's in his word, we've got to put that into our hearts and into our lives and let them grow. If, if you want fruitfulness, if you want things like love and joy and patience and self-control, they're not like a ready meal. You can't go and buy them off the shelf and stick them in the microwave and 30 seconds later you've got love. It doesn't work that way. What the Bible says is you've got to take the seeds of the gospel. You've got to say what God says in his word about those things. And like a seed, you've got to plant it in the good soil of your heart and you've got to let the Holy Spirit water it until over time it will begin to produce fruit in your life. It's one way of looking at how you read the Bible, the word of God every day. It's like you're taking those truths and you're planting them in the soil of your heart. And you know it's going to take a bit of time, but you know what? If you will plant them in the seed, you know, in your heart, the Holy Spirit will grow them. I I'm a bit of a gardener, but I know this. I know if I want to grow grapes in my garden, doesn't matter how much golf I play. It won't produce grapes. I can play golf wearing grape-coloured clothes. Won't produce grapes. I can play golf while chanting, grow grapes, grow. Won't grow grapes. I can play golf and talk about growing grapes. Won't grow grapes. I can play golf with the greatest grape grower in the world. It will not grow grapes. The thing that grows grapes is planting grape seeds in the ground. And we are foolish if we think that we can harvest fruitfulness and righteousness in our lives and somehow avoid the process of taking the seeds of the gospel, the truth that's contained in God's word and planting it in the soil of our hearts and letting it grow through our lives. What matters is the seed and not the sower. Let me quickly try and go through the soil 
the soil. There are four different types of soil that Jesus talks about here. The question is, what can we learn about discipleship? The first soil, it talks about seed landing on a hard path. It fails to penetrate. And if you like, it says the, the, the devil snatched away the good seed. And maybe we can ask ourselves, are there things that we do that maybe assist the devil in those kind of moments? Maybe we share for too long. Someone just needed a little clip of what Jesus has done for us, but we give them the four-hour Lord of the Rings director's extended version. And meanwhile, they're fast asleep. Maybe it is that we're just not ready like it tells us to be in 1 Peter 3.15. We don't share succinctly, without waffle, without religious jargon. And the person gets so bored and confused and they glazed over. And in that minute the devil takes the opportunity to swoop and like a bird flies away with that good seed. Maybe it is that we don't explain things clearly, respectfully. And so we end up offending people by the harsh or the brash manner in which we say it. There is a massive difference between someone being offended by the message and by the messenger. Some people put those two things together, but they're completely separate. We have to accept people will get offended by our message, but they don't need to get offended by the manner in which we give it to them. So sometimes we say nothing. Sometimes we say too much, sometimes we're unclear, sometimes we may be offensive. They're all, if you like, potential moments for the devil to kind of swoop in and snatch away the good seed of the gospel. The second soil that Jesus talked about, he said some seed, you know, landed on the rocky path. It, it didn't take root, it quickly withered when the sun shone. And in terms of discipleship, there's surely something here we can reflect on was that the reason the plant withered was because its root weren't strong enough when the sun shone, when the heat got turned up, when life got a bit difficulty, when there was some persecution, some trials in life. And the answer, it seems, not to give greater levels of protection from those trials and difficulties, you know, in my garden, I can't stop the wind, the rain, the snow, the frost from hammering my plants. But what I can do is make sure that the soil is good, that the roots are strong. That what's going on under the surface means that no matter what the battering or bruising is coming from above, the plant can survive. And so in terms of discipleship, I think we need to spell out and model for new believers and for one another. What do we need to do to make sure that we have strong roots, deep foundations? Sometimes I think we're a bit reticent about this. We don't want to burden one another with lots of rules. We don't want to burden new believers with that. Sometimes Christians play the grace card. They play the grace card. It's like they don't need to do anything. We're not under law. We're not under rules or regulations. Dale, you tell us we're, we're not under the, the law. We're, they, it's, like they play a, it's like they pull it out of their back pocket. I'm playing the grace card now. I'm trumping everything you're going to say to me with the grace card. Now, it's true. We are all under grace. We don't need to do anything for our salvation because Jesus has done it all. But if you and I want to grow as disciples, we need to put down roots and foundations that are going to enable us to stand in the day of trial. And for that, we really need to do something. See, I think often Christians play the grace card to excuse themselves from doing the things they know God calls them to do in order to grow. What we call grace, he calls discipleship. See, I think 
He says, grace means you did nothing for your salvation, Dale. Now let's talk about discipleship. Grace means you did nothing for your salvation. Now let's talk about how my grace can enable you to become more like Jesus. I think that's what God says. Whereas we kind of say, thanks for saving me, Jesus. I'm so glad that grace means I have to do nothing in terms of becoming more like you. That's what I think goes on in our heads and our hearts sometimes. But it's fun, isn't it? Because we don't condemn new mums when they train their babies to feed every three hours when they're newborn so they can grow healthily. We don't, we don't condemn, we don't say, bad mum, bad mum, why did you wake up your three-week-old baby to feed them? Just let them sleep. No, no. We say, well done, mum, for waking them up because it's been three hours they need to feed and if they don't feed, then they might well die. We say, well done. We're not reticent then. So how come sometimes we can shy away from that with one another. If we know that difficulties, trials, persecutions, hot times, dry times, barren times are likely to come for every believer, new and old, because that's what the Bible says. And if we know that God says those times are going to come and unless your roots and foundations are deep and strong, you are going to wither, then surely we should do all that we can to model and encourage to one another we must put down deep roots. We must put down firm foundations. I understand as a gardener that if I'm going to encourage root growth, then I must do a few things. I must, I must turn over the soil. If the soil is all hard, like stone, the root can't get through. And I know if I'm going to plant, I need to put in manure. I need to take out some of that soil that's got no nutrients in. And I need to put in some new good soil. And I know that I must water the thing. I must put water on it so those roots can soak up all that goodness. We know that from gardening. Do you know it's exactly the same in terms of our discipleship. We need God to turn over our hearts regularly so that things like bitterness, unforgiveness, selfishness don't become like hard rocks that roots can't penetrate through. We, we know that we must feed. We must feed our hearts with the word of God so that it's like putting those good nutrients back in. Otherwise, they just get dry and empty. We know that the Holy Spirit must come and water them. Must come and water them. Otherwise we just get dry and eventually starts to wither. If you plant a plant and you don't dig over the hard soil and you don't put manure in and you don't water it and you stick it in and you look at it every day, not doing very well. Shall I, shall I dig some manure in? Nah. Shall I put some water on it? Nah. Come back the next day. Not doing very well. Shall I put some manure? Nah. Shall I water it? Nah. Oh, it's dead. I wonder what happened. I don't understand. I knew what to do. I don't, why did it die? I think we have to be careful that we are not the same ourselves or that we don't kind of end up not telling other people other Christians, new believers, to do the good things that is going to make the plant healthy. We need, we need God to break up the soil of our hearts. We need the word of God to feed us. 
We need the Holy Spirit to keep watering our soil. We need it. Thirdly, some landed among the thorns. They, it says they don't produce the fruit they should. It says here and it says in other passages, it says three things, the worries of this life, deceitfulness of wealth, and elsewhere it says the desire for other things, i.e. pleasure. And really what Jesus is saying here, you know what, some, some Christians spend so much time and energy worried about the things of this life, they just don't have any capacity for anything that God may want them to do. They, they're so busy, wrapped up in the day-to-day, they can't think of anything outside of that. Can't think of mission, eternity, kingdom. He says some are just deceived by wealth. Actually, they put their faith in money. It gives them a sense of well-being, security, self-sufficiency. They have no need of God. Wealth becomes this kind of substitute for God. Problem is, no matter how much money you have, it's not going to buy the one thing which we all need, which is getting right with a holy God. It cannot buy you salvation. It cannot buy you righteousness. The only one who's paid the price for that is Jesus. It doesn't matter you're the richest person in the world, you cannot buy that. And therefore money cannot sort out that problem. And elsewhere it says about pleasures. It's just pleasures. Just, just want to live life for what I can get out of it in the here and now. That is more important to me than Jesus. And the point is that all these things stop fruitfulness. They all stop us becoming more like Jesus. It's like an apple tree that bears no apple. They're an apple tree, but they bear as many apples as the thistle next to them. It's ridiculous. In the parable, they end up being no different than the weeds around them. It says they grow up next to the weeds. They produce no fruit. The weeds produce no fruit. Neither produce any fruit for God. These worried, distracted, deceived Christians end up looking like and bearing as much fruit as the weeds that are around them. Those who grow up among the thorns. But then finally Jesus says about the good soil. Some of the seed is going to land on the good soil and it's going to make a crop. It's going to be 30, 60 or 100 times what's planted. Imagine that, if you're a farmer, every seed you plant, 30, 60, 100 times, what is planted? So in terms of discipleship, right seed in right soil equals a fruitful harvest. And there's a promise here that if you and I will plant the gospel, the good seed into our hearts, and if we will, if we will water the soil, and if we will put God's word, the nutrients, into the soil, we can trust that we will be fruitful. We may not see all the fruit, but God says, you will, you will be fruitful. You will reap a harvest. When God reckons everything. When God says, actually I'm going to now count the fruitfulness of your life, God says if you've done that, you will reap a harvest 30, 60 or 100 times. If you gave into this offering and we as a church use that money as we will do, somehow, somehow that's all part of the fruitfulness that we are producing as a church, that we are producing as individual Christians. Every prayer, every word of encouragement, every time you give, every time you and I forgive, every time we witness, every time we prefer somebody else over ourselves, we may not see it, people may not appreciate it, we may not realise it, but God sees it, God knows it, 
God reckons it all. And God says, actually, one day I'm going to declare over you the harvest that you have reaped 30, 60, 100 times. What we've sown. Good seed in good soil will bear fruitfulness. I have gone on and it's 10 past. Gosh, I'm sorry about that. Okay, we are, we are going to go for some words of knowledge. We're going to have to be quick though because we haven't got a lot of time. But I said it, we're going to go for it. So if you, if you have a word of knowledge, if you've been sitting there thinking, Dale, shut up, I want to give my word of knowledge, then now is the moment, now is the time to come forward and then we'll give time to pray for people kind of at the end. So is there anybody here who feels that God has given them a prophetic word, a word of knowledge for somebody else here this morning? Now is the moment.